You can't replace part of the brain. Like, you treat them the same. The source of truth for the medtech industry. Coexists with the province. Robot understands things automatically. Number one show in the medtech industry. So Stryker got ahead of that and changed in the 90s, built a billion dollar company that helped a pie, a lot of things. State of medtech with your host, Omar M. Khatib. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Today's episode is a unique one. It's, I, I'll be honest with you, this is the first time I've had a guest make it on the show like this. So as you might know, being the number one show in MedTech, which is true based on downloads and reviews and content quality and volume, we are the number one show in the industry. Um, we get a lot of requests and I can't tell you how many people blow up my inbox on Instagram, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Some of you guys find some some of my like company emails that, that I have no idea. Like somebody found my accounting email. No idea how you found that. And pitch people, right? And so of course it's tough for me to decide who to have on the show, et cetera. I have never in the entirety of having the show where we're starting our third year, had somebody pitch their father. So Sean O'Neill uh, sent me a message on Instagram and said, hey, you know, uh, been following your show. I really love it a lot. I know my dad's a fan of your show. I really think you should have my dad on. And he had a, you know, sort of a pitch as to why he should ha be on the show. And me being a father, uh, that really touched me because I said, well, this guy did something right. If his grown son, like Sean's not a kid, he's a grown man now, respects and admires his father enough that he would cold outreach and pitch him coming on the show. And so of course, uh, I wanted to meet his father, so Tom and I, you know, jumped on a Zoom, and I should have recorded that as an episode because we spent an hour almost just, uh, sh you know, sharing stories uh, uh, and ideas and everything, you know, uh, really uh, seeing eye to eye on a lot of things. And so, Tom O'Neill is the president and CEO and board member at Cogniview, which is a really interesting company. Essentially what Cogniview is, is it's a risk assessment test that identifies changes in cognitive function that could be indicative of early dementia for Alzheimer's disease. It's the world's first FDA cleared computerized test of cognitive function. Prior to that, he's had an illustrious career in the medical device world. Uh, he was president of North American uh, Commercial Operations at Keygen. Uh, he was division president at Hologic, uh, he was also at Orthoclinical Diagnostics, which is now Carlock Company, and uh, really started his career over at Bosch and Lom, um, where he actually, I believe, he was the manager of a really well-known biotech uh, 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 CEO, Mark McKenna, who had a phenomenal exit uh, at Prometheus for ten point seven billion dollars. By the way, Mark is coming on the show to share that story, and so. Uh, Tom's just got a phenomenal uh, uh, history, great, great stories about what it means to be a med device leader and, you know, navigate, you know, through this world. Uh, but also, I got to say, like, he's, you know, he's one of my favorite guests because he's somebody that through the podcast has become a good friend of mine, you know, for JP Morgan Healthcare Week. He actually invited me out uh, and saw if, you know, if I would like to fly in a day early just to go to dinner with him and Mark and, uh, and another uh, uh, friend. Uh, and we had such a great time. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm happy that Tom and I have become friends, and I think you're going to love this episode. Uh, and definitely be sure to give him a follow on LinkedIn. Now, before we jump into there, of course, big shout out to our sponsor, Clary, renewed for their, I think, third or their, this is their fourth quarter, wonderful software company who is in alignment with my mission and vision, which is how do we make 
our sales and marketing efforts better. So if you're a, a company that uses Salesforce, you got to check out Clary because if you invest in Salesforce, I'm telling you right now that investment is at risk because Salesforce is a database. It doesn't manage itself, right? So what Clary is, is a intelligent software platform that plugs into your Salesforce and does some really amazing things. Here's the two main things that I love the most. Number one, your reps are out in the field. They're super busy. Using Salesforce is not going to help them close more deals, but you need them to be compliant to get good data in there because as they say, garbage in, garbage out. So you need good data to get in to be able to make good decision decisions, right? A lot of times that data that's getting it is not good. It's bad data, right? So what Clary does is it automates the data that your reps need to get in into the system. It's really quite magical, to be honest with you. The next thing it does is that it layers on and makes the idea of running revenue, not something that's owned just by the sales and commercial team, but a cross-organizational function, right? They call it revenue collaboration and governance. So that way, your sales team, your marketing team, clinical success, so on and so forth, everybody's on the same page about running revenue. And that could be things like identifying deals that are at risk, looking at which deals are going to be closing soon and where, where the budget should be allocated, pipeline velocity, and so much more. So take my don't take, don't take my word for it yourself. Go and see it. Book a demo. So go to Clary.com. That's C-L-A-R-I.com and learn more. Or check the show notes below and click the link for Clary. That'll take you directly to their life science page. They've got some really impressive companies that they're working with. And I know they can help yours as well. And finally, if you're a startup CEO or founder, hey, I know what it's like to have to raise money. I know what it's like to get commercial traction. It's really, really hard. We at Kativen Co. want to help you. We work with a numerous amount of startups to help them raise awareness with investors through social media and content. And a lot of times, most companies aren't commercial ready. And so before they even hire a VP of sales, a commercial team, they come in and contract us out to lay a commercial foundation to help them use digital sales processes and marketing to find early adopters who can become KOLs for the company early in its days. If you want to learn more, go to KhatibAndCo.com. Now, let's get on to our episode with Tom O'Neill. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. And my guest today joins us uh, probably in a really interesting way. One, as the number one show in MedTech, I get pitched all the time by people as to why somebody should come on the show, why they should come on the show. It's really rare that somebody's son d does that. So Tom O'Neill is the CEO of Cognivio, and his son actually reached out to me via Instagram and pitched on why his dad should come on the show. And for me, uh, being a father, I was just really touched by the fact that somebody's you know, somebody's son really like admired their father that much that they did that pitch. And it was a good pitch to be frank. And so because of that, and also, you know, Tom and I, we, we had a separate zoom call and we, we had so much fun on that call. I was just like, absolutely. He's got to come on my show. So Tom, thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I appreciate you having me, Omar. Thank you. No, totally. Totally. So Tom, you, you know, you served a lot of, um, you know, uh, high high roles in leadership in med tech at large companies but i think like one of the things that i want to uh, start off with which i think a lot of sales leaders will benefit is that you, you had some really interesting stints in your career at different companies uh you were at nabisco which for those who are familiar um that's the company that was uh in in the uh, book barbarians at the gate which was all about like hostile takeovers and mergers and acquisitions um among many other things, but let's start with the first thing is, which is like, where'd you, where'd you grow up 
and you know what, what were some influences in your life and how did you get into med tech because you know i think there i will probably get to that you know uh as we go through like your nabisco years and everything but maybe start off with how did you how did you grow up and what were some key influences in your life yeah no i appreciate that so i grew up in cleveland ohio the west side of cleveland um you know, it was, it was an interesting, first of my, my parents were amazing. Right. But, but I grew up in a world where my dad worked from seven in the morning till, till five at night. And my mom worked from five at night till one in the morning, my, my entire life. Right. So, so I saw that that was a huge influence for me. Um, I fast forward after high school, I went to college, I went to Cleveland state. Um, it, I got to tell you, school just wasn't for me. It wasn't my thing at the time. Right. So I went, I went for two semesters, felt like senior high school. I was living at home and driving to, to school. Um, I ended up dropping out after two semesters. Uh, then I, I went to be a furniture mover. So I was a furniture mover for the next year, which basically meant I was a truck driver. And um, I came home from one of the very long days and there were long days every day. And in, in a 16 hours. My dad was up at one in the morning when I got there and I had to go back to work at six in the morning. But my dad said, Hey, listen, rather than hump triple dressers up three flights of stairs for the next 20 years, why don't you go study for 12 hours a day at the library at school and make a better life for yourself? So, you know, I did, I made that move. Uh, three of my best friends, uh, we went to, from high school, we went to university of Akron. And, and here was a, a big driver for me. I learned a lot about myself is everybody that I talked to adults and, and friends too, that are like, Oh, you guys are going to party and you guys are going to fail out. And something changed in me, Omar, like clicked, right? It, like you tell me what I can't do. And now I'm going to show you. Right. So I went to school at Akron, lived there, but I was taking 16 to 18 hours a day credits. And I was working 32 hours a week, never got below a three, five, uh, GPA and, and then ultimately, you know, went into my senior year where I did an inter internship with Nabisco and that's where my career kind of took off. Cause after I graduated, I started there full time. Um, and then it's, you know, 30 years later, 28 of those years have been in healthcare. Got it. Got it. Well, let's start maybe with the Nabisco years, which is like, how did you end up there? What were some things that you learned? Cause I think yeah. you were there during the time of that, like hostile takeover, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was. I was with the in the biscuit division, which is the cookies and crackers. And you know, another thing, just to kind of go back to that initial comment about people telling you what you can't do. I remember family um, saying or friends saying, "Hey, do you need a degree to sell cookies and crackers?" And I just, it was one of those things that just kind of grinded me, right, irritated me. And so, um, to to get to the Nabisco thing, it, it was that moment that that it was being sold uh, to KKR. And it was all the focus was performance, performance, performance. I took over the worst territory um, and turned it around, um, made it my mission to, to work whatever, 12, 14 hours a day. What was interesting, Omar, is I even tried to go back for my master's at the time, but there was no master's online. It was only, you know, driving to school, but I was already working 12, 14 hours a day. So I've, I quickly realized I was either going to, kill myself in a car accident because I was racing so fast because I, I wanted to do the best I could do at work while also doing more and trying to inform and educate myself. So I, I pulled out to get my master's and, and then I just became work and life became my master's, if you will. Got it. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that's like a, uh, a journey that a lot of like sales leaders go on, which is essentially, you know, there is no school for sales, uh, 
per se. Well, there's my, I have, I have a course, but like, you know, pun intended, but like essentially, you know, you can't go to college for sales and everything. And so a lot of it's just being self-taught and then like apprenticing under the right people. Um, you know, where, where, where'd you go after Nabisco and like, what, what was your medical sales career like? Yeah. So I went into from, from Nabisco biscuit, I went into J and J. So I was at Johnson and Johnson for 11 years, but I started out in consumer. So we think about there's a transition there, right? From Nabisco consumer packaged goods to J and J. So Tylenol, Pepsid, Mylanta, right? All those products. So went from consumer to consumer healthcare, right? OTC medications that are sold in drugstores or stores, uh, you know, globally. Um, did that for, for four years. And then I'm like, Hey, if I'm going to be at J and J and I wanted to be at J and J for a long time, I'm going to find my way to pharmaceuticals. Right. So I, I pushed to, to get into the pharma world at J and J with Ortho McNeil. But the interesting thing was even within the world of J and J and at the time it was a $14 billion company. Now it's, you know, well over 70 billion. I think even after the, the That's a this is this is a question uh, worth uh, googling. So, because yeah. uh, that's amazing to hear that. Like when you were with them, it was a fourteen billion dollar company. Yeah. So now it's a three hundred and seventy two billion dollar market cap. Market cap. Market cap. Right. So it was it was fourteen billion at the time. Um, but I but I knew if I wanted to grow within J and J, pharma was that kind of rocket ship. So I had to break in. But when I went and, and I have a lot of great friends that still to this day that I go scuba diving with and other stuff from the pharma space that I grew up with at J&J. But when I went there, you would have thought because I came from consumer, I was selling used Chevys and they were selling new Mercedes. So it was, again, this chip on my shoulder, right? Like, tell me what I can't do and I'm going to show you. So within two years, uh, one president's club. Uh, five of my district managers went on president's club with me, which was, which was awesome. Um, got to manage an army of people, did that for a while, went to the reimbursement side. So started working on payer access. Um, so I, I moved through that at J and J and then I, you know, I was at J and J at that point, 10, 11 years. And I realized that, listen, the best thing that ever happened to me was go work for J and J. The second best thing I ever did was leave J&J. So I left J&J, went to Valiant, ran their uh, Derm and, and um, uh, Neuro franchises for the sales. So I ran their sales organizations for Derm and Neuro. Uh, grew up there for a year. But here I am, This I, like, I was literally like 30 years old, 32 years old. And, and I, go, I leave the mothership. I go to Valiant to run that, that business. And I was out within a year because they had a big drug called Veramidine. It was phase three trials for hep C. Um, it didn't do well. It met its uh, safety endpoint, but not its efficacy endpoint. So now I'm out, right? Like my career, like high flying, doing all this thing, and now I'm out. So my job was to find a job. I landed uh, Synergize, which was a VC-backed um, hybrid contact lens company. And it was based down in Carlsbad, California. Was it-, it was. I was number seven. So I was the first sales like guy. Big- Big companies to your first startup, first startup and VC back startup, right? So yeah. a whole different world in that space, right? So, so I never, you know, and and here again, kind of a common theme, right? I remember interviewing with the the CEO's name is Tom Cruise and and Dave the CFO, and I remember him saying, "You don't have any optometry or vision care experience," and and I didn't do it disrespectfully. I said, "Well, 
either to you, Tom, <laughs> his name is Tom Cruise. I said, either to you and, and him and the CFO laughed a little bit. I said, it's not about that. That's content. I can learn content. Let me tell you about how I would build a sales organization. And so I had to build it from scratch, right? From the, the territory, the, the profiles of the reps we wanted, the territory alignments, the comp models, um, everything that you could imagine we built from scratch. Um, did that for a couple of years and then went to Bausch and Lomb, um, moved from Southern California to, to Bausch and Lomb. And, and that's where I was again, running all of first, all us sales, uh, for, for contact lenses, vision care. Then I took all over all North America, which was not only the vision care and the contact lenses, but also all the consumer, um, mm -hmm. and did that for till they sold. So when I went to Bausch and Lomb, it was the. It had just been taken private. So before it was taken private by Warburg, which is a big PE firm, they were the second oldest company on the New York Stock Exchange. And just, it was a complete turnaround, right? So uh, Pete Valente recruited me in um, to, to help with the team to turn that around. So we spent the next five years turning around and, and Valiant ended up acquiring it um, through, that, through that phase. And, and then I moved over to orthoclinical diagnostics. So here again, go to a totally different space. So chemistry, immunohematology, donor screening. And, and so I, I went there and ran North America, Latin America, and EMEA for them. Um, did that through, so that was part of J&J &J again. But I also knew that when I went there, they were being sold. So they were being sold in Carlisle, another large private equity firm ended up acquiring them. Uh, from Johnson and Johnson, I stayed on with uh, Carlisle for another year before I got recruited to go run Global Surgical for Hologics. So I ran the Global Surgical business for Hologics, a uh, women's health franchise. So we did everything from uterine and fibroid um, uh, removal, po excuse me, uh, polyp and fibroid removal, and uterine ablations, and we had a uh, we had a fluid management system too. It, Tom, if you don't mind, I'm, I want to uh, jump in for a second and ask sure. you, so like, you know, you, you served at like really various, a lot of various types of companies and sizes and like, we're given like really huge responsibilities at a young age. And you mentioned winning presence club. I mean, w what's your advice? Like, w what do you think, what does it take to be a successful salesperson? I mean, forget about med device, but just, yeah. you know, for those who are just starting out, I think that that's the one thing that people really don't aren't given much guidance on, which is everybody knows like to be successful in sales, like you just got to be really good at closing deals, but we don't talk about the, uh, the mindset and the mentality that goes behind it. So can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Like you've hired a lot of salespeople, like what, how do you identify a great salesperson without, yeah. you know, and let's say they don't have numbers behind their names yet. Yeah. So, so I'll clarify, I won 11 president's club. So I'm proud of that. Right. Whether as a, was an in, whether as an individual contributor or as as a manager or or above, right? Um, and and I will tell you, it's a couple of things for me. It's 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 work ethic first off, and it's it's understanding where you are a, from a performance standpoint a, against your quota, right? So where am I at at any given time? Whether it's a month, you got to make the week to make the month to make the the quarter to make the year, and. And it's something that I learned early on as a rep. And it's just because, listen, I had to make money. I had to pay the bills, right? So to me, it was, it was all about understanding, like, how are they paying me? What am I being measured against? And then how do I influence that, right? And how do I drive that? So that was a key driver for me is understanding my comp model 
to the point where I was measuring it, managing it every day, and then driving it. The other piece is, is customer service and, and just supporting your customer. I don't care if your customer is a, a retail buyer, a procurement person, a, a doctor, a, a, a scientist in the lab. They're, they're all people and they all want to be supported the right way. So I did everything I could to better understand how that individual was measured in their job. And then how could I help deliver for them, right? So those were key drivers for me. Um, and then it, like nobody was ever going to outwork me, like nobody, right? Like I, I did, it was just my mission, right? I was going to, I was going to beat everybody to the office or to the, to the hospital. And I wasn't going to leave till, till it was done and everybody else was gone. Got it. When you talk about measuring against like your comp plan, can you give me a little more, more, uh, uh details about that? Like, how do you, how do you, what, what does that mean? First of all? Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you because I think it's it's cleaner as I, if I explain it to you as a manager. So one of the first things I do when I was a manager, or even even as a CEO, if I go ride with a rep, I ask them, um, "How are you doing against plan?" And if they don't know, which by the way is amazing to me, right? But they'll answer. They'll be like, "I'm not really sure." I'm like, "How are you a sales person?" Right? Sales is the only job where you're paid based on your performance, right? Everything else is salary. You actually get paid. The, the better you do, the more you get paid, right? So if you're a true salesperson and you don't know where you stand on any given day, one of two things has happened. Either A, you're not a good sales rep and, and you don't understand how you're getting paid or B, your sales, your comp plan is so complicated that it's not easily, easily understood or easily tracked. So that it wasn't always the rep's fault. Sometimes I had to take it back and go back to my comp team and go, hey, Lee, what? we got to make this clean. We got to make this simple. So they understand, the, the reps understand how they're making their money. Because if, if you can't see a direct line from that, Omar, from where you are now to how you're going to earn bonus this month or this quarter, like, what are you doing other than just being a customer service person? You know, when I was, i give you another example. When I was with when I was at Hologic and I was with my surgical reps and we're in the OR and I'd watch them work. And if, if they were just going to be, I'm going to say this respectfully, if they were just going to be an, an, another scrub tech or a scrub nurse, right? Just there to, to set up and make sure everything was there. If all they did was be there for that or be there to support the doctor, that's going to be limiting. That's yeah, they, already limit. have scrub, they already have scrub techs and nurses they, to help with that. They don't need another one. They, right, exactly. So, so my conversation would always be, all right, to, to, to my rep is, what are you doing to sell them either a new piece of capital, uh, a line extension on, on, on the technology we have, uh, a, a new product we're launching, a new kit? What are you doing to expand the, the platform within that hospital so we could grow beyond just how many cases can we attend? If you're living in a world where you're just how many cases can you attend, you're, you're going to make short-term perform. You're going to make short-term money, short-term performance. But over time, that's gonna that's gonna fail because there's only so many so many procedures to be in. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, hundred percent, hundred percent. And I think like understanding your comp plan is also important just to figure out like what's the fastest path to uh, hitting that quota, right? Yeah, I when I, I changed our, our comp plan in, in the last six months here, and I changed it to, to incentivize reps for a longer term contract. So 
24 months, 36 months paid out more than a 12 month contract, right? Um, even more than a capital contract. And, and I can't even tell you how many people said, you're never going to be able to do that. That's not going to, people aren't going to be able to say, sell it. But the incentive was so high for them to sell a 36 month contract. We've sold more capital, more 36 month contracts in the last four months than we have for the last four years. And we did it because salespeople are performance driven, you know, compensation driven people and they want to perform and they want to succeed. So you put it in front of them. That's what drives performance. There's all the other stuff too, right? There's a lot of activity and other things, but all the activity is to a means to an end, right? How do you perform? How do you drive to beat quota and make as much money as you can? Yeah. And I, no, I completely agree with you there. I mean, you know, even, uh, the late Charlie Munger, one of his, uh, 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 well, uh, in his speech on he, psych, psychology, human mis misjudgment, he talked about incentives and how powerful they are. And I think the example he used was that um, at uh, I think Xerox, they you know uh, the GM couldn't figure out why their their newest um, printer was just not being sold and wasn't working. And when he looked at it, it was because like the older printer had a better incentive right. in terms of selling. And so that's what the sales team sold. And so I think like in, when, once you, once you put, you know, incentives, I think are undervalued in terms of how powerful they can be, you know, yeah. and I think that's also uh, for like med device companies who have to go through distributors. Right. Um, this is why I think capital in the United States of at least I don't, I don't recommend people using distributors for selling capital equipment because the incentive isn't that strong. Cause like, it's like, okay, well I can spend like 69 months wasting time or spending a lot of time trying to sell this one piece of capital equipment, or I can just sell this other disposable implant, which is like low cost by sell high volume of it. And I make the same amount of money, you know, Omar, I was on a call this morning with a group that looks um, and, and, and essentially interviews distributor, potential distributors for you. And the same conversation was had, right? Like capital is not a great model for a distributor or a distributor rep because they're looking for consumption and, and the disposable. And, yeah. And even on that stuff, I mean, I have friends who are distributors, you know, they're getting paid net 90, net 120 sometimes from hospitals on those things. So like for them to take on something like capital is just like a huge risk to their business. And I don't blame them yeah. for not, uh, being great at selling capital. It's just the incentive is not good enough. You know, no, but I, I think there's other ways to use distributors, right? I think you can use distributors as a lead gen model, right? So pay them for leads then, and then pay them more for a lead that closes. I totally, I totally agree with that. How do you determine like with a distributor? Um, I mean, it's a simple answer for me, but most people don't know how to, how to calculate this, but how do you, how do you agree on the cost per lead? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's two. So I think there's, there's a lead that's just a lead and that's not mm -hmm. super valuable for me. A lead that closes, that's super valuable for me. So you want you now it's important for, for me as the supplier to make sure that I'm profiling what a, what a customer looks like, right? What a successful customer looks like. Cause if that, if that distributor rep doesn't know what they're looking for and they're just putting names in, there's no, there's, there's like, I, I could put inside sales in, or I could buy a list, right? That's, that's not interesting to me. A warm lead or a hot lead where they've already done some of the qualifying, that's where it matters. And then when I close it, like let my reps close it, but when they close it, make it a bigger incentive for them. So I think it depends on the price of the, 
the price of the product, whether it's a SaaS model, whether it's a, a subscription, whether it's a per device or capital, I still think they all can have a model that's a lead gen. That's where I think some distributors can really bring value uh, to an organization. Got it. Yeah. And I, and I totally, I totally agree. And I think that, you know, the more in, at least in our industry, and this is part of the reason why I started my company, the more sophisticated we get at selling and doing business, the better quality results we'll end up getting, I think. Um, you know, at some point in your career, like, you know, you made this jump from, um, you know, being a director and manager and everything to essentially like, you know, like at Bosch and Lama, you were VP and GM at OrthoClinic, you were president of North America. You know, when you make that jump, like you're getting paid more money to handle like bigger problems, right? What, what was, what's, what's that transition like? Cause I think that's one thing that a lot of, I think reps don't get like me personally. I don't think there's a lot of people who are great sales reps or great sales people, but they don't, they're not going to be good in like a GM role. Right. But they kind of end up in, they kind of uh, get promoted to their level of incompetence, right? Their skill set is just not matched for success. What's that transition like? And, you know, like, like for me, um, uh, when I talk to marketers, I, I, my thing is like, okay, if you love running, let's say campaigns and doing copywriting and everything, like don't go above a marketing manager role or director. Cause the moment you get to like ahead of marketing, you're not dealing with that. You're dealing with like bigger strategic problems. Like where do we deploy money? And if you don't like that conversation or you're not interested in that, like you're not going to be successful. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about that, but I'm going to start with a, a little bit of a different conversation because I think yeah, totally. the, big, the biggest moves in my career were one, when I went inside the marketing from sales to marketing. Okay. So think about it this way. When I was in sales, you know, I was, I was managing two of the top 10 customers in the country for, for J&J consumer. I went into marketing really not having an idea of what I was getting into, and then I realized when I get into marketing, I better understanding of the whole model, the business model. So I got to work with finance, with operations, with customer service, with sales, with marketing, with all of it. Right. So I got a better picture of the total model that I did not have as just a salesperson. And I think that's okay. Cause you need salespeople very focused on driving sales. You don't need them worrying about all this other stuff. Right. But, but getting into marketing, that was my first opportunity to really get a better understanding of the strategy and why we did things. The other thing is I realized when I did call as a sales rep, I probably did shut everything down to get me what I needed. And that's a bad thing because I might've taken the, the marketing people off of something, a more profitable, high growth project to get me what I needed. Now, all of a sudden I just had a better understanding. The second big move I, I made was going from being an individual contributor to being a sales manager. Man, I'm, I'm telling you, Omar, this was kind of, just think about it. I was a super successful sales rep everywhere I had been, right? And everything was about what I did, like how I did it. And then I went to be a sales manager, frontline manager, and now nothing had to do with me. Everything had to do with how I got it done through others. So now all of a sudden, you know, how do I optimize my team? How do I, how do I, because everybody is driven by different things. So how do you really you know, get the best out of everyone so that they're delivering. So ultimately you can be successful. And by the way, as a manager, you know what you never do? Never talk about me. I never use the word I never. My boss's job is to talk about me. My job is to talk about the great work my reps are doing. Right. So 
that's how I, so now to your question, that's kind of been the way I've operated at every level, right? Like I've never made it about me. The higher I go, the more I make it about the team that I have, the more important the culture of, of performance, the culture of people becomes important. The important, the, the, again, I mentioned content, like you can learn all the content, right? You just, if a great, you mentioned this, um, uh, about you, you get to the level of failure, right? You, you reference something like that. What I would say is a great rep doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a great manager. It just doesn't. And it doesn't because they, 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 that doesn't always translate. So J and J did a great job of identifying great reps, but also those leadership capabilities, those, those core competencies of leadership. So you could identify the people that were still yeah, absolutely high performers at driving the business, but also did they have the leadership qualities to understand it's, it's more about the team than it is about them. You're going to be successful as a leader if you get the most out of your team. So translate that to my first move in the general management, right? And, and, and then to president and beyond. To me, and I think if you talk to most everybody that's ever worked for me, I do everything I can to make it about the, the team and creating a, an environment of performance. That's, that's yeah. what I focus on. And I'm happy you mentioned that. Cause like, you know, um, I had like uh, Jim Alexion, uh, who's the, uh, SVP of sales for intuitive in the early days. And he was mentioning that when he got to the executive level, like he, you know, he, before he got promoted, he won an award and his boss said, Hey, like, you know, enjoy this award because this is the last time you're going to receive one of these. Like they don't give yeah. awards to people like us. Right. You know, and usually I guess the award award is like, you know, your, you know, the zeros that go at the end of your paycheck. Right. But um, I think like one of the problems, do you feel like one of the problems in our industry is that you have a really good salesperson who's a great individual contributor, and then they get promoted to a VP level. And now like, rather than being a really good manager of people, they're just kind of like this all-star salesperson who manages a sales team. And at the end of the quarter, they're like flying all over the place, closing deals and stuff, which probably makes you feel really good, but that's just not a scalable business model. Do you feel like that's a problem in our industry? I, I think it's, I think it's a problem in most med device, um, med tech, um, whether it's, and, and I guess within any space, right? Cause whether it's pharma, whether it's surgical, uh, orthopedics, diagnostics, you have that, you have, Man, great reps that have become great managers, great men. And you'll see exactly, Omar, I've seen that, right? I've seen where they're, they're on a plane, they're going to close deals. They're going to do that stuff because they didn't pick up the buckets of knowledge and understand the importance of leadership that becomes scalable. So I think of when you're a rep and, and when you look at my, my resume and my, my career, it, it looks like it, it, it's a jagged, a, a jagged process, right? Like I think everybody looks at their career path, career path and thinks it should be a straight line. Okay. I hundred percent do not think that's true. I think you should make lateral moves. You should make backwards moves. You should then make frontwards moves. Like every one of those moves you make should not be to do the same thing you've been doing for a different company. That should be a bucket of knowledge that you're picking up. So what's the new bucket of knowledge you're going to get in that new role um, at that new company? Listen, if you want to be the hired gun and you just want to do that. That's awesome. Like go do it. I'm, I'm talking about management, general management and, and president above. If you want to do more, go get those buckets of knowledge, go take the step from rep to, to marketing, go make the step from marketing to 
payer access. Go make the step from payer access to, to second line management. Go learn different buckets of different buckets of knowledge. Because when, to your earlier point, if you're going to have to get into strategic conversations about where the the business is going, or should we make this acquisition, or should we divest this business, or should we restructure the organization? If you don't have those buckets of knowledge, and you just did this straight line up to vice president or up to, to president, and you never got to experience those things, how good are you going to be at doing it? Like, I've learned, I and, and I think this all goes back to, you know, fail fast, learn fast, make mistakes, learn, keep moving, have great mentors, right? I learn as much, maybe more from the bad managers I've had that as I learned from my good managers and my good mentors, right? Like I try to constantly soak up as much as I can, good and bad, right? So that I know if it's a bad manager, they're doing something that I don't think makes sense. And I'm like, that's not what I want to be when I'm a manager, right? I want to be different than that, right? So I think all of those go into, you don't just step into the, the GM role, right? I mean, everybody's got to take a big step at some point, but I'll go back to those first two steps I told you, going inside into marketing, understanding how they run their business. And secondly, into a, a manager role where you're not the individual contributor and, and you got to learn how to make it about everybody else and not yourself. You mentioned going backwards in your career. Like what, what's a good example of when you would go, go backwards and you would support something like that? Because usually the problem with that is that you're going, you, when you do that, you go backwards in your responsibilities, but also your pay. And so that's a, like really tough for people, you know? It is. Uh, so first off, if you're in a, a bigger organization, a lot of times they'll protect that. So they'll put in some type of, you know, gap filler, right? So if you're going to take a step back and you're going to go into marketing, but you're going to go in for that bucket of knowledge, they'll cover that. If they don't, again, this goes back to who's the right person that you want to be a manager, a director, a VP, a general manager, a president, or a CEO. It's somebody that, that plays the long game. If you're like, listen, I got to make 300 this year. If I don't make 300, then I'm not taking that job. That, by the way, that's totally cool. If that's where you see yourself, if you want to get to serious money, significant money, you might have to take that step back where you go, I'm going to make the lateral. I'm going to take a step back and go into an assistant product director or a marketing role and, and know that that's two years investment in you, in your career. So you, you might leave to go for an MBA, right? People get that. But think of going into another role that might be a lateral or a slight step back for that bucket of knowledge. So if you're going to do it and you're going to pay for an MBA, why wouldn't you do it with your career and go take 18 to 24 months to learn another segment of the business? And, and I'm, going to use, I'm going to use marketing in a different way because marketing to me is like product directors, product managers are mini GMs, okay, because you get to manage the budget and the budget and all the different levers that you can pull to drive your business. So think about that as a really good junior GM role that gets you ready for more later. No, and that makes, I think it's a great way to, to put it. You know, a lot of times I tell people, um, sometimes you have to think about the investment of like revenue generating skills or, or income generating skills that you're getting. Yeah. Um, so like when I went from sales to marketing, like I saw a little bit of a decrease in my, in my salary, Yep. Um, 
but I knew that like over the long term, like the skills I was developing were a lot more sought after and unique. You know, there, my my mentor Chris Sells said it best to me. He's like, "Look, Omar, he's like, there's thousands of salespeople out there. He's like, go into marketing and learn how the company is really run, and then if right. after that you want to come back to sales, you can." I was like, "It's a great way to look at it." So, you know, hundred percent agree with that. And I think, listen, you're. The fact that you're starting off and the most important people in any organization, are the ones in front of the customer, like the fact that you've already built that, that skill set and that, that, um, competency, that's going to, you're going to carry that forever, right? Like marketers who just started marketing and didn't interact with the field or didn't, not the field, this, the customer there, there's a gap there. I, yeah. And I think they're at a significant disadvantage. That's not to say like, there's plenty of really good marketers I know who never sold, sure. um, but like, there's a huge gap that you have to make up for. And it's really tough. And that's why, at least in my, in, in our industry, I don't think marketing is very strong because most marketing in our industry is more product management focus and upstream, which is important as its place. But like, this is also why most sales don't, doesn't like marketing because it's not helping to grow pipeline or close yeah. deals. You know, Omar, I, I, I agree with you. But I, but I'd say the, the very good marketers, the self-aware marketers that are either spending time in the field. I've, every organization I've had, I make my, my marketers go ride with reps. That's the right thing to do. Yeah. It's not even a question. They have to go ride with reps because they need to understand what it's like, what, what it's like to be the face of the company, the face of the product. They have to, to, you know, have uh, those discussions that might be more challenging, um, they need to understand that so that the the tools they're putting together are the right tools for the sales organization because nobody has a job if we're not selling something. No, absolutely. You know, uh, and then I, I want to kind of round out. I want to talk a little bit more about what you what you're doing at your new company, Cogniview. What Cogniview does, but also like this is the thing where I wonder how it's affected you because you know when you when you depart the role of like a VP of marketing, VP of sales, and, you, and you're at CEO level, like you don't get to do the things that you love. You're actually getting paid to deal with just a lot of bad news and problems most of the time. Um, so I'm just wondering like, how, how's that been for you? Cause you know, you, I mean, you've been CEO there for five years now, yeah. but this is the, this is your, I think this is your first CEO role, correct? It is. So it's my first CEO role. And I started with, it was me and three people, right? So <laughs> I came in and, and it was a distressed asset. So it was an IP, uh, acquisition by uh, uh, my primary invest, my only investor, and so we had the, uh, you know, we had they acquired it and then came came in and and brought you on board, or how how did that happen? Yeah, so so Tom acquired the business, and then he recruited me in to come in and commercialize it. So it was it was already carried through the FDA clearance process, and then he brought me in to commercialize it. As I say before, we, I was going to say before we got it, get into like uh, uh, yeah. talking. About uh, real quick, what is Cognitive View and what is what, what do they do? Yeah, so we're the first FDA computerized test of cognition. So think of it like a large laptop. Um, and we have just filed our 19th patent. But it's it is we are as much a the medical device company as we are a software company. So I have an entire software team. We do all I brought all manufacturing inside, but we this this technology for 40 years, it's been paper and pencil. Some of your um, your listeners might be things, they might know of things like MOCA or MMSC or MINICOG. These are ways that neuropsych tests that have been done in the neurology, neuropsych space. Um, we have, the lack of a better way of explaining, gamified that, right? And and it's not question and answers. It's, it's 10 exercises in 10 minutes. 
we are measuring every one twelfth of the second. So we get 130,000 data points in 10 minutes. And then we, our system simplifies it. And, and so it's self-administered, it's self-scored, a report comes out, the doctor, whether it's whether it's a neurologist, a neuropsych, a psych, or even primary care internal medicine family practice, they can use that to determine what the next steps should be for that patient. It's not a diagnostic. It's a tool for them to use to determine, you know, is it still early enough that there can be some intervention before it becomes something like Alzheimer's or dementia? Got it. Got it. So when you were brought in to take it over, first of all, like, why did you decide to do this? Because it's kind of like... It's a tough ask, right, to come in and be CEO, but then you're CEO of like a small three-person company, and then it's a distressed asset. Like what exactly about it attracted you? Yeah, so a, a couple of things. I think for me, getting to work with my primary investor, Tom Galasano, he's worth $7 billion. He is he built a company called Paychex. It's a payroll services company. Uh, he's got 17 companies out of the family office. So I got the, the last almost six years now, I got to work with Tom. He's, he's my chairman of my board, but got to work with him. Um, I like his style. He lets me run the business, but he also is there for me to learn and I get to get to bounce stuff off him. Um, the, the, now remember where I've been, right? So um, turn around Bausch and Loam, turn, you know, turned around ortho clinical, but also drove it through, through an acquisition, turned around Hologic. Like if you look at what my experience has been, it's really kind of taken assets that, that have challenges and then turn those around. Right. So what was interesting to me is, is how do we make this a successful space? And I also knew that there are, there are over 300 drugs in development for Alzheimer's and dementia. And the system's not set up right now to identify the patients that are going to be good candidates for those interventions. So I knew this, this testing space was going to be explosive, right? So for me, understanding what that was, and then, you know, to be honest, Tom gave me a really good piece of the equity. So significantly bigger than a, a traditional CEO would get. So for me, it was one where, you know, it is, is, it is all about building something and building something that I wanted to build. So think about this too, Omar, everywhere I've been, been in a big corporate environment here, I got to build it from scratch and build a culture. Like, I think if you take, if you build a performance culture where you take care of your people, they will take care of your customers. Like I just firmly believe that. And then you, you drive performance and you hold people accountable to it. Well, we've been able to do that. Right. And, and so that's what, what drove me here was that, Listen, everybody's working for a reason, right? I, I love building, being able to build something, fix something and build it. I love the, the expected or hope payoff when we have an event. Um, but I also love the fact that I get to make those tr strategic decisions in the direction that we go and where we go and how we go about it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I, I completely, I also agree with the idea that like, you know, for one, like, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of stupid the fact that like we have to have a conversation about this, but you know, in our industry, it's kind of like they, they want to find a better way to retain people. I'm like, well, just like pay them more money. It's like kind of, it's kind of, kind of pretty easy way. Like, you know, do people like, uh, I don't know, benefits and like pizza parties and whatever, you know, like, sure. That stuff is cool. But like, you know, it works really well. Money. Yeah, just pay right. people really good money. And I think if you pay people really good money, like they also make sure that like they're, you know, your customer is really well taken care of. You know, yeah. I think um, I'm trying to remember who was it. Um, oh God, the fact that I can't remember who I was talking to the other day 
it'll come come to me in a second about speaking to yeah. somebody who, who said that like they actually um don't believe in taking the customer care of the customer first they believe in taking care of the employees yeah, first yeah because they'll take care of the like customer. make sure our employees are really well taken care of yeah. um the customer is going to be you know taking really you know taking really well care of you know yep uh, so i couldn't agree more i think that's how we we try to operate here um i also think for me make more money but if you're in a startup so you can't necessarily pay what the big companies pay when when people come into a startup so i fought hard with with tom and with the board to give equity to every single person that works here that's down to the to the to the frontline you know manufacturing folks or customer service folks or even um you know the first few people and and more equity up front like the higher the risk the more there there should be equity we've de-risked over the last six years so there's less equity for the for the people that come in now but because you can't necessarily pay them as much in a base we for my sales reps we incentivize the heck out of them right so that so they can earn some real some real good money right um so yes the money's there but that equity piece is is also driving them right because they've heard all the story we've all heard the stories of be there when an event happens that equity is what's going to make a difference life-changing money versus you know just annual base and bonus no a hundred percent how do you think about selling and marketing these days considering like how much the landscape has changed so like for you guys do you do you sell directly to physician practices who who do you sell to directly yeah we do so we we sell to direct it so we think about it this way we we sell to systems hospital systems um, but you don't just get into a hospital system. You have to build, you know, support at the neurology level. So if we're in, in this case, like at Hologic, it was a OBGYN or GYN. Here, it's the neurologist going to be the gatekeeper, right? So get the neurologist to buy into our technology and the value of our technology. And then you work it into the system. And then you work it into primary care. A neurology or neuropsych department is not going to let anything into primary care for cognitive testing that they haven't already approved. So yeah, we sell to, we sell to MDs. We also have a, a screener, a five minute screener that we sell to the allied health. So we have audiologists that, and we have a lot of audiologists uh, across us, uh, Canada and the UK that use our, our screening tool. And this is the easiest way to explain it. Omar is we hear with our ears, but we process those sounds with our brain. So there's a cognitive component to how our ears work and also our vision. So, so there's a, there's a whole other business there that we shifted back during COVID when every MD office in the hospital, everybody kind of closed down to reps, we shifted to audiology. So that's that agility that you have as a small company that you don't always have as a big company. We shifted to audiology and that's where we started selling during, during COVID. You know, when you look at the industry now, like where do you feel like our industry is struggling the most on the commercial side in terms of like innovations within sales and marketing and stuff? What are the kind of things that you, you feel like we, we need to do a much better job as an industry? I know it's kind of a broad question, but like yeah. you've been in so many different roles and everything and you, you kind of see it, see from a much higher place. What, what kind of comes to mind for that? Yeah, I think it's how do we identify great talent? Um, talent that's wants to put the effort in and and because i think there i think things have changed within the the amount of work somebody wants to put in to get paid and that work-life balance so i think the the generation the younger generation now many of them look for that work-life balance and then they think 
COVID and the work from home added to that. Okay. So, so now all of a sudden, how do you find great talent that's willing to put 12, 14 hours a day and, and drive their business and do that? Right. Like I've, I've heard from, you know, some, some of these folks and, and, and it's not a bad thing. It's just a different mindset, but they will be like, you know, I, I do this, this, I used to do X number of events last year. I'm doing double that now, but I'm, I'm not paid anymore. And they're a salaried employee. So you just look at it and go, but you and I, whatever it took to be successful, you were going to do it. Right. And, and you were, you were rewarded for it in sales. How many people are willing to put that effort in and drive that and then know that they got to do that for two to three years, four years. When I, when I have this conversation with, with young professionals, I mentor a lot of young professionals and, and I give them the example. I'm like, okay, you're making a hundred grand as a sales rep. Somebody else comes along and offers you 120. Are you going to take it? And every one of them first goes, yes. And I go, stop, right? Like, first of all, you're going to, they're promising you're going to be in management development. They're promising you all this stuff. You're going to be basically doing the same thing in the new company that you were doing now just for 20 grand. And then I do the math and I, I make them divide it by the 20, 25, 26 pays. I take out the taxes. I go, okay, so your brand, what you're worth, the brand of Omar is worth whatever, call it $400 a pay. That's what you're telling me you're worth. They're like, well, I never thought about it that way. I said, go get another bucket of knowledge. If you're going to leave, go do that. And, I, and then they're like, yeah, but I've been doing this for at that point for two years. I go, show me as a, as a rep, you can grow on top of growth. Show me you can get through a really difficult year, right? Those are things that staying power is what I think is one of our bigger challenges. To answer your question, I think we got we to gotta find the right people and then we got to set them up for success through training and, and education so they, that everybody wants to be the president now in, in two years. Like you, you don't get there without understanding all those different things, all those different components. So I think there's just an education component to it. No, I completely agree. And I think this is part of the reason like my, my company was uh, started uh, on, on an, an educational product, of, of course. And the thing that was kind of shocking to me is like 98% to date, you know, and that course has been around for two years, 98% of the people who are enrolled in it, um, they're, they're reps and they all paid out of pocket. And so my, one of the things I'm kind of disappointed in is that like the industry, they kind of talk out of both sides of their mouth. So the industry talks about like investing into your people and we're trying to be very innovative and everything. And I'm like, okay, well, why haven't you trained your reps? Yeah. You know, and I feel like training, like, like, the sales training is so poor in this industry. Like, I think like, just because you're a rep, they assume that you know how to negotiate and persuade and everything and forget it, forget that. I mean, just, just understanding the fact that the customers changed and how they communicate. So like, forget social media. Let's just yeah. look at basic, which is email. You know, how many salespeople have been properly trained on how do you, how do you send a persuasive email? Like what's your follow-up yeah. sequence and everything. Yeah. And, and the answer is very little. Very little. You know, there's this like changing of the guard that's happening right now where I think I'm at the very beginning of the adoption curve where um, there are sales leaders and companies who believe in this and like, you know, we got to get our people trained better and they got to know what they're doing. But everybody else, it's just kind of like, you know, I feel like reps are what they're dealing with is like a company who's not willing to invest in them in them and then constantly reducing their territory while, while also increasing their quota every year. And then they're, 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 
and guidance is just like, well, you just got to work harder and you got to just right. find your way in and everything. And I'm like, you know, and it's, anytime a ref tells me that, I'm just like, you should find a new job, find somebody yeah. else because you're not putting being put in a position to be successful. And if you're not being put in a position to be successful, you're, you got a job that's just making you like a disgruntled person. Yeah, so, you know? Omar, I agree. I think that goes back to the point of you got it. And, and I grew up in a world at J&J where there was a lot of training. There was a lot of focus on development. But in addition to that, I also never let anybody tell me how my career was going to go. So I went and grabbed these buckets of knowledge and tried to learn different things. But your managers, right? Your team leads, your managers, your directors, you got to train them so that they can, because what the, the adult learning happens in bits, right? It doesn't, I, I, the sales meetings where you go for five days and they just put all yeah, this that, stuff in your head. It's, no. it's worthless. Like you're maybe retaining 20, 30% of that. And so for me, adult learning is, is what I love what you're doing, Omar, because I think it's, how do you do it in, in small bits and bites so that they can not only, listen, but learn and then go try it out and, and keep practicing. I think that's the way adult learning. I think we're much smarter about it, but the managers have to know how to do that because they're working with the reps all the time, right? They're the ones riding with the reps. They're the ones that understand how to get done. That's where a significant amount of training has to happen is between the manager and the rep. And if the manager doesn't know, you're just propagating the issue, right? It's, it's becoming a bigger problem. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think, I mean, on that same token, I always tell people like your, your, your career and personal growth is not necessarily your manager's responsibility. Yeah. And so I tell people all the time, like, you know, when was the last, you know, a lot of reps reach out to me for advice and I ask them like, okay, well, when was the last time like you, you bought a book and just read and read, read a book? It's like, oh, I, it's been a long time. I'm like, yeah. all right, what about a course? What about a conference? What about something? And, you know, they realize that like they haven't done any professional development in, years like and some of them are like eight nine ten years and i'm like yeah. how, how do you expect to make more money given how fast things change and move and you haven't even spent time to learn new yeah. new modalities new tools like what like you know omar i'm still i'm I, i'm part of a ceo forum so mm -hmm. i'm with other ceos just so i can listen and learn and we challenge and we talk to each other and and we have people come in to present to us like the learning never stops, right? Like I'm, I just got, I got this one. I just got this. Oh yeah. Right. Not, yeah. I, I just picked it up. Like, so. And yeah, see, you're a CEO and you're suit. And the thing, these, a lot of these reps are like, oh, I'm too busy. I'm like, do you think CEOs are more busier than you? CEOs still buy, buy books and learn. Yeah. Um, you know, they get on again, going to forms and everything. It's just all part of the process. Yeah. You know, for me, like I, I, um, I don't have an exact number, but, at minimum, like five to five to 10% of my income every year is spent on education. Like I know I can tell you just right off the bat this year, there is a, like an entrepreneurial mastermind group that I'm a part of and base, I, I, I pay monthly for that, but I pay about $18,000 a year for that thing. Yeah. That's one thing, you know, investment um, in yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that, like you'll never go wrong with an investment in yourself, you know, like um, there's a, uh, entrepreneur named Alex Ramos. He's kind of really famous now, but he has a saying where it's like, yeah, I've seen you know, stuff. Yeah. yeah, he's like, you can invest in the S and P 500 and you get like a 10% return or you invest in the S and me 500. And if you invest <laughs> in your own education, like yeah. you'll get like 10, 20, 30 extra turns, you know, up a little bit and go, I'm a hundred percent, hundred percent. Tom, just in kind of wrapping up and I appreciate you coming on the show, uh, out of curiosity, I mean, I see that you're a leader, uh, a reader. 
Um, what are some of the uh, books that you recommend for like sales le leaders to read that have had a you know impact on your career? Yeah, I'll tell you what. There's 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 a lot of them that are out there, and I'm I'm most of them are theoretical and 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 theoretical and that they're not really into the nuts and bolts of it. And, and so I'm going to tell you the one I want your, your folks to read is uh, built, not born. And it's, it's by the, the, my primary investor. So you think of it, we're talking about sales, but every single per every position I've had from as a sales rep, all the way up to CEO, I'm selling, I'm either selling customers or I'm selling internally or I'm selling the board or I'm selling investors. Like you're always selling and. And what Tom does in his book, I have it right here, like uh, yeah, Tom Tom Rosano, yeah, built not born, right? So my my point in it, he gets out of theoretical. Tom is kind of more of a nuts and bolts. Get into the and 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 by the way, he built his own company selling himself. So he's really good and comfortable in the selling world. He sold his first three hundred customers, and it took him four years to do it. But I think it's it's a great book to understand what it takes to be successful. And rather than the, the, the plethora of selling books that are out there, you know, from my perspective, I think it's broadening yourself beyond that. And I think Tom is, is successful on every right, right? He's, he's worth $7 billion. He's built and sold multiple companies, but Paychecks is his original one where he is the consummate sales guy. He sold his first 300 customers. It took him four years. So I think reading and understanding beyond just sales, I think that's where built, not born um, is probably going to be really helpful for your, for your listeners. Totally. And I think like, I don't know, a lot of times, um, you know, I think reps, they, they look for like these sort of books written by other salesers, but I always recommend them. Like if you, like, if you read a book written by a billionaire, like I think you're going to get a lot more valuable first principle thinking than others. And like, even me, like, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not running a venture back company, but I, I benefited a lot when I listened to Elon Musk's book and even Steve Jobs book, because at some, some level, they talk about selling and marketing and your yeah, and first principle thinking, which I think is the most important thing. I think there's a lot of tactical stuff you can always learn, but if you learn the first principles of like being a savvy and acute business person, then like, you're always going to benefit from that. Right. Well, exactly. And if you think about it, a sales rep, like, so if it's, if it's Omar's territory, you should be running that territory. Like it's your business. It's Omar's yeah, company. It's your business. So why not read something like built, not born with a guy that made us a, a, a $7 billion, you know, a business that's now worth well over 40 billion, but he's made 7 billion for himself. A hundred. No, I, I completely agree. And I think when you elevate your level of thinking to, to that, then you, you, you kind of expand the way you, sh you, you think about things versus like more like acute and sort of short, short-term thinking, you know? Yeah. Tactical thinking is I'm a sales rep and I got to hit a quota. Bigger thinking is this is my business. How am I going to run my business with my customers and the products that I have? Exactly. Exactly. Well, Tom, thank you so much for like coming on the show. And I think uh best place to connect and follow you online is that you are on, on LinkedIn and, and active on there, correct? I am. I am. So Tom O'Neill, O-N-E-I-L-L, -L, or you can just go to our website, www, either way. Awesome. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. And for those who are listening, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the show and give us five stars and a review. We'll see you all next time. Thank you for enjoying another epic episode of The State of MedTech. If you're feeling inspired and love this episode, 
do us a favor, hit that subscribe button and turn notifications on so you never miss an episode. And be sure to give us five stars and write a short review because that helps more people discover this amazing community of ours. If you're a company who has a executive that you'd like to be on the show or perhaps you want to sponsor one of the episodes, shoot us an email at hello at katibandco.com. Take care and we'll see you next time.